How are you, Rachel? I'm all right. Thanks, Philip. You? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Obviously, our regular listeners will know that we didn't put out the episode last week. And that was a decision we took based on what was happening in Israel and Gaza. And I'm sure like many of you, we are watching the news and staying in touch with friends and family in the area. So obviously we're hoping for a swift and peaceful resolution on all sides because it has been a very eventful couple of weeks. Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking the other day that when you look at the last few years in the UK, the Jews have come up on the news a lot. And I would be quite happy now to have a little break from that and not have any mention, just, you know, maybe a week off. It would be nice to have uh, a bit of time where we aren't mentioned. Although, to be fair, the other day I was driving to pick up my kids from school and I turned on the news and nothing, nothing about Jews. I've never been so excited for things to be falling apart in the UK. (laughs) There has been some good news, though, for you talking to me. Yes, very selfishly. This is all about us now. But uh, we've been listed on a website called Best Startup UK as one of the top 20 UK comedy podcasts. It was very exciting, especially because we're quite new. We've been going nearly a year. We've got our anniversary coming up in July. Yes. I don't know if we're planning on doing anything. Maybe maybe we'll get a cake. That'd be good. Maybe a cake shaped like a bagel. Obviously, it would be a bagel. But I think if we're going to get any cake to celebrate, it would have to be Chaim the Caterpillar. (laughs) It's lovely to get a bit of recognition for our hard work, but also it's for you, our listeners. But it's not because the cake's not big enough. So (laughs) let's get on with the show. This episode of Duke Talking to Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Philip Simon. And I'm Rachel Krieger. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Orthodox, so my copy of the Old Testament is very well read. And I'm Reform, so my copy of the Old Testament could be listed on eBay as mint in box. This show is the audio equivalent of chicken soup. It's warm, nourishing and inexplicably full of noodles. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they Bamba or Bambi? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. Our guest this week really moved between two different lives. First up is academic and theatre historian Naomi Paxton, who's also known for her variety act as Ada Camp. Thanks for having me. This is a super treat. Thanks for joining us. Naomi, what kind of Jew are you? Well, I'm not here under false fences, but I'm actually not a Jew. I'm your token non-Jew. My grandfather came from a Jewish family, but he converted to marry my grandmother, who was daughter of a Welsh Methodist minister. But I did call him Zayda. So I had a nine in a Zayda because nine is the Welsh for grandmother. So he was my Zayda, but actually technically I'm not Jewish. Naomi, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Okay, the most Jewish thing that's happened to me recently is happening now. Being on this podcast is very exciting. Well, I hope your Zayda would be very proud of you. When you were growing up, what was it like going to his home? They were phenomenal. My nine and Zayda were just amazing. And the thing I remember about him is um, he loved theatre and they were larger than life. They were brilliant characters. He was in the RAF. And I remember when I told him I wanted to be a performer, he gave me his old box of five and nines, his, his makeup sticks from his amateur theatre days and I've actually got his theatre collection here and I've got posters on my wall of him and the thing I remember most really my one of my last encounters with him we went to see him he's died now he was living in an assisted thing and I just met my now wife uh, then girlfriend and he had a stroke and he couldn't speak but I introduced him to Kate 
And I remember he looked at us and then he pointed to both of us and then went the kind of camp gesture and then a thumbs up, which I thought was a very, a very sweet thing. But he remained inspiration and his whole family didn't convert. So I have one of my aunts, so it's been my cousin, I suppose, was a rabbi actually in North London. And um, the rest of his brothers and sisters remained within the Jewish faith. He was the only one to convert. One of the things that's lovely about this show is when we get on people that we know and then we find out all kinds of stuff about their backgrounds and history. That was lovely. Thank you. I was just thinking about your grandpa and the pan stick makeup and I thought that was so gorgeous. It really was incredibly special I think because he loved being an actor I think if he you know hadn't been in the forces and he'd been able to he'd have been a professional performer so it's wonderful and my whole family were involved so I look back through the photographs and I can see Chris Levy as the director and David Levy as one of the dancers and Margaret Levy as the prompter and my mum was in the performance as well so the whole family were involved in the performances which is just great to kind of look back and see there's a bit of a, a legacy there at least with passion if not contacts and network. I'm going to jew you up a little bit because <sighs> Levy or the tribe of Levy their job in the temple was to produce the music they blew the ram's horn the chauffeur they were a performative tribe so it's not surprising that that's your heritage so you were part of the original theatre dynasty that just makes me so happy that's amazing I had a long chat with my great uncle this afternoon who's obviously my Zeta's brother about the family and where they were all from and I thought Lithuania it's Latvia and um, they all kind of grew up in Hackney and the different names and the family and the different Yiddish names and stuff so I, I, I felt thoroughly Jewed this afternoon I feel even even more now. So thank you very much indeed for that. I love that. That's your heritage, no person. Oh my gosh, I'm chuffed a bit. Thank you. There's a gene. People with that surname can legitimately trace it back. If you do a my heritage DNA thing, you might find really fascinating Levy Ooh. performative history. I have to look back because my great grandfather's name was Wolf Levy, and um, he was born here. So I'll I'll go back and see what I can find. I hope you feel your place is now super justified. Absolutely. Our next guest is photographer and stand-up comic Steve Best. Hello. Nice to be here. Welcome. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. Good. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question. What kind of Jew are you? Well, I would say I'm South London <laughs> Sutton Orthodox. Um, I think my dad wanted us to move to North London to, to be more with the Orthodox side of things. But Sutton Synagogue was an Orthodox synagogue. So um, I was brought up that way. But I'm kind of non-practicing now, I must admit. And I married a communist from the former Yugoslavia. So um, that's where I am now. So was your family when you were growing up more religious? Culturally, very aware and I've got a twin brother and an older brother so we're all bemitzvahed um, a twin brother we obviously had the same day and we shared the Haftorah no we didn't we shared part of the first bit and then he did the Haftorah so yes we had meat and milk and Passover and all change all the cutlery and all that stuff so yeah we were kind of brought up in an orthodox way we were kind of orthodox within the South London Sutton community in that sense so right. we kind of kept everything and you know the holy days and all that stuff yeah so that was way back when, but Steve, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Well, I wished Bennett Aaron long life after Bennett's mum passed away. We have a comedy poker session every week, and we do it on Zoom at the moment. Bennett's part of our group, and there's Mark Mayer, Mark Billing, and Mike Gunn. And there's a few people who are not Jewish who said, oh, I don't know what to say. And it just came naturally to say, I wish you long life. You should kind of think, well, that's the Jewishy thing, I suppose, isn't it? Super Jewish. Bennett has been a guest on this show, so we all collectively also wish him long life. I wish him long life too. I think that's very nice that you were able to help your friends console another friend by using a very Jewish phrase. I never know what to say at funerals. I normally turn up at the front of the queue and end up saying something like, you all right? I think that's what, you know, if you're a little bit awkward, like some of my comedian friends are, they really don't know quite what to do. So I think having that phrase is good and it does make a lot of sense. It's quite a nice thing to say. I think, I don't know who worked it out and why. Is there a reason for that? Well, I wish you a long life. Yeah. It's a Torah blessing. It's one of the rewards you get for keeping certain of the commandments and the life expectancy.
expectancy is supposed to be 120 years of a fulfilled life. So that's why you would wish people to reach that. Sounds exhausting. And also, if you were talking about the fact that we might one day die, like let's say I was at my parents and there's a particular painting that I want as and when, then I'd say, when you get to 120, I want that painting. That's how you'd express Uh, it. Or if you're talking about an elderly relative, you know, you'd say when they're 120. (laughs) That's quite good. I like that. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought the 120 thing was something you said at people's birthdays. Uh, as well yeah so it's a, celebra- it's a celebratory thing as well like you're nearly there <laughs> another, <laughs> another 60 to go like it's some kind of cutoff point exactly yeah <laughs> you're sort of somewhere between lived a full life to good innings exactly <laughs> with the technology we've got now i definitely remember we went to uh, the funeral of my dad's best friend's dad and i'd taken some time off work to go to this funeral to show support and, and i went up to say whatever you're supposed to say and, and he said to me the, the friend he said thank you so much for coming and I panicked and said I wouldn't have missed it for the world like like it was some great event I've been looking forward to for months and months this wonderful funeral Well, these are tough times that we're living in at the moment. So we always like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? Naomi, what's going on with you at the moment? Well, you know, Zoom times and lockdown, but I've been really fortunate. So I've just been trying to keep busy and hustle. I've been eating way too much chocolate. The only thing that's really annoyed me, I think, during this whole time is that, and this is really super silly, I used to pride myself in a really annoying way about being somebody who only drank double espressos. I would stand behind people in like coffee shop queues going, I just want the double espresso when everyone's fanning about with milk. And I think it's because I was forced to work as a barista during various times when I was out of work as a performer. And it always annoyed me when people would be like, I want a decaf soya latte. And I just, oh, for goodness sake, just pull yourself together and get on the train. You know, it's ridiculous. But um, lockdown has introduced me to the oat milk cappuccino. So I have become the thing I despise. And I know I'm going to have to give it up. I've started to enjoy just having an oat milk cappuccino and I've I've become that person that makes the barista froth the milk and I'm annoyed with myself for having let myself go to that extent. It's caffeinated though, isn't it? As long as it's not decaf. Yeah, I'm not not an idiot. (laughs) That's fine. But I agree with you with someone that asks a decaffeinated coffee in a a coffee shop, you know. It's ridiculous. I can see Rachel's face. She obviously does that. I'm not allowed to have caffeine and I'm not allowed dairy, so I have oat milk (laughs) and decaf. You can imagine. It's for medical reasons. I've got a notes from the doctor why don't you just ask for a cup of hot milk what's the point of asking for the additional non-caffeinated brown liquid it's at the bottom to, which is just a huge fat it's to remind myself of the vague flavor of the drink that i enjoyed more than anything i've now had 20 something caffeine free years which includes no chocolate at all because cocoa contains Rachel. quite a high amount of caffeine so you know i feel like there should be a just giving page now for me and i don't think you need the helpline having spent a lot of time with you in coffee shop (laughs) and had to order for you i think we need the helpline that people have to go to the counter and say oh i should have written it down i don't remember what she wants now you've definitely had caffeine the few times i've ordered for you i definitely haven't you'd have known by our hospital visit and i'm fine 99 of the time but if i'm for example in a queue with someone in a supermarket and they get a flake off the side and they start eating it before they've paid and then they breathe in my general direction i want to bite their face off like i get the craving (laughs) for chocolate is so massive and the one gratitude i have really for the pandemic is that because people are wearing masks 
I don't have to deal with chocolate breath anymore and the uh, anger that it builds in me. I quite like the scenario in that story was that you like it when they eat chocolate they've not yet purchased. So <laughs> legal chocolate, you don't like at all. For you, it's the buzz of the fact they've not paid for this item. <laughs> I think it's just the being breathed on with chocolate. Like everyone has their thing, whatever it might be. <laughs> we are not here to judge. Well, I can understand decaffeinated coffee actually does still taste like coffee. Yes. It's just you don't yeah. get the buzz. So that's fine. I get that. If you medically can't have it. But I've started having oat milk as well because I think dairy, when you get a bit older, it's a bit rubbish sometimes. But eczema and things like that. When you say oat milk cappuccino, though, is it a specific type of oat milk they have that does actually froth up? There is like a barista edition. I actually bought some oat milk and I tried it in my espresso machine and make myself one. And I got I got cross with myself halfway through that process. I went, stop what you're doing. Just drink espresso like you normally I, do. In Waitrose, I go to Waitrose. Mm-hmm. You can get oat milk, but you can get barista oat milk. If I could find Aldi or Lidl selling barista style oat milk. Well, try it. No, it's definitely it. worth it. I, I don't know if any of you ever worked as a barista, but there is something about working at a South London commuter station. When somebody rushes up to you in a panic with two minutes of their train and goes, I need a decaf soya latte. And you think, no, you don't. You don't. That's going to do nothing for you. There should be somebody dresses a giant teddy bear. If you really want a hug, go and have a hug and then run and get your train. If anything, there should be an express line for your espresso. <laughs> there should be. I'm the easiest person. Anyway, I'm now part of the problem and I need to get over myself. I used to have a, a little coffee joke that I wrote before lockdown that I've only used once. Something about I was in the queue and this guy jumped the queue and he ordered a quadruple espresso and he drank it straight away and didn't pay for it and walked out of the shop. I don't know how he can sleep at night. <laughs> it was a beautiful linking moment. So now, Naomi, we know that you're part of the problem and that is what's grinding your gears at the moment. Steve, how about you? What's the matter, Bubbler? Well, Philip and Rachel, during lockdown, I bought myself a beautiful printer that prints fine art, kind of high-end photographic paper because I wanted to start printing my own prints now. It's rather expensive. It comes with 10 inks. It's not like the normal four inks. It's like there's three black inks. There's a grey black and there's a matte black. There's so many different inks on it. And when it comes new, they only give you half the packet of the ink for some reason. So I did all my tests and I tried out all the paper I wanted to use and I got ready and I had this big order to do and I ran out of the black ink and I can't get it. And it's dry. It's taken me a month to source it. So I thought it was because of Brexit, but it's actually you can't get it anywhere in Europe. So I had to go to Australia and places like that. And eventually this friend lives in Berlin, has found one of them and they're sending it over. Everything is on order. I don't know if it's on the container, you know, the, in the Suez Canal, that big boat, but it's just, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. And it's driving me crazy. Not that exciting, but it's annoying. I don't know what it is, whether it's the coronavirus or people aren't working in ink factories or whatever's going on. Very frustrating. It is annoying when you get a printer and they only give you half the ink, though. That's not, not a good start. No. But I think what I should have done when I got the printer is thought that this might happen and just lo- ordered a load of ink uh, and they would have seen me through. How yeah. much have you ordered now? I ordered from different shops. I've got about five black inks coming. You're going to have five delivery guys turning up on your doorstep at once and it's the start of a beautiful rom-com where <laughs> they all converge on your doorstep and go, you, does he... Do you order from you? you yeah. Okay, the no. massive box full of packing <laughs> stuff and a tiny little printer cartridge. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Can I mention another thing? Mention. So we moved house last year, actually to a house that we were able to kind of do up. And so I've been looking for things to be creative with. And I'm not very good at making stuff. I'm very enthusiastic, but I'm not great at actually executing the making. Although I 
give it a go. So I was looking for, you know, those fake coals in a sort of fake fireplace that you get that kind of light up. So you get fake logs of fake coals, right? Fine. So I was thinking, well, are there other fake things that are available? Could you get, I don't know, fake aubergines or fake kind of devil's heads or fake anything? Fruit on fire. I don't know. No, the answer is no. And it's driving me nuts. So you found a niche then, because now if you're after something like that, that means other people are after something like that. So you should start producing it yourself. I should. But we come back to the point about me not being very good at making things. Okay. So I need to find somebody who loves to make really flammable porcelain objects. And the two things that you listed that you were desperate to get hold of were flaming fruit and people on fire. Not people. I thought it'd be quite fun if you had like little naughty faces or just fruit and veg. So in the day it would look like a still life and at night you'd be like, aha, still life on fire. <laughs> still if life have- on fire is definitely narrated by Brian Blessed. <laughs> I am a traditional Jewish mother, which means that whenever I meet anybody, the first thing that I think of is, have you eaten yet? And at least one person, if not more of the four of us, has been fed by me backstage at a gig. So I'm interested to hear about your memories of either Jewish food or meals with Jewish people, any connection or recollection that you might have about your favourite Jewish foods, whatever that might be. Steve, what about you? I came up with the obvious ones to start with. I was thinking of cinnamon balls at Passover, because my nan used to make those. And then coconut pyramids as well, she used to make, which are really nice, gooey in the inside, and I used to love them. And we never had them throughout the year, which is very strange, because you can still make cinnamon balls, can't you? And also chicken liver, obviously, which I'm sure all your guests talk about. There was something special about homemade chicken liver with all the fat and everything my mum had one of those metal grinder things which was extraordinary you could never find that in restaurants anywhere I'm sure you can maybe in kosher Jewish I never went to Jewish kosher restaurants and then I spoke to my dad and he mentioned chulant which we used to have which was meat and potatoes in the oven for five days or something Um, (laughs) and the one I remember which we used to hate as kids but my mum used to have this calves foot jelly calves foot jelly yeah my grandma used to make that fissanoga well I remember my mum and dad calling it fissanoga but I don't know if that's made up or... Whether it sounds like feet and noggin, doesn't it? So That was horrible. It was a meaty jelly. And then the other one, which I like now, actually, I don't think I liked as a kid, was borscht. Interesting. Um, I really like it now. Very good for you. You've developed a taste for it. Yeah, but not carsfoot jelly. Carsfoot jelly is incredibly good for you. Like, it contains so many nutrients. People used to often make it for elderly people or if you weren't well. However ill I've ever been in my whole life, that isn't the thing that would have made me feel better. It's interesting what you say about cinnamon balls and coconut pyramids and all that, because the food that we associate with particular holidays, on the whole, they do tend to be just a thing you only make that one time a year. But I rebel against that and so like on Passover obviously people make a million different things out of matzah and I will make it all year round matzah brai which is matzah soaked with egg and all crumbled up and then you fry it we used to do that we matzah brai we used to have it all the time we used to uh, heat up some milk so soften the matzah so make it really yeah. soggy then put a couple of eggs in there salt and pepper and, and then fry it yeah. Yeah, and fine. I make that I do make that in the year it's really nice and it's very filling and sometimes you've been at a gig and you come back and it's 11 o'clock at night in December and miserable outside you think I just need a carb but it has to include a protein we had coconut pyramids and cinnamon balls only at Pesach and I think when I would say to my mum why can't we have them any other time she'd say well, it's Pesach food but actually you're right the ingredients you could have any it's just gluten free baking which is not always great <laughs> but oh. coconut pyramids were because we were all brought up on this story that that the Jewish people in slavery in Egypt had to build the pyramids, but that is historically 
incorrect. Rafi Zarum is the head of the London School of Jewish Studies, amongst many other things. He is always at pains, I think, most years to remind people that we built the store cities, but we did not build the pyramids because we weren't in Egypt at the same time as them. It would be difficult. The commute would have been tough. We didn't build them out of coconut either, I suppose. (laughs) They wouldn't have lasted quite as long, would they? Very tasty though. It does seem odd that a festival that is so symbolic in terms of we have the salt water to remember your tears and we have the set to remember the cement used for the building and we make coconut pyramids. Why? Fairground attractions in, in Egypt. <laughs> I think it's just when people make a themed dinner, they tend to always jump the shark with one thing. So coconut yeah. pyramids are doing it for us. Oi. What could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all the usual platforms, as well as our own website, jewtalkingtome.com. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe and leave a lovely review. It's what your mother would want. And do you eat latkes on Pesach or cheesecake on Hanukkah? Are there Jewish holiday foods that you love to eat at the wrong time of year? Tell us all about it on social media using the hashtag kosherfoodrebel at Jew Talking Without the G. And now back to the show. What about you, Naomi? I made a mistake when I was younger. My Zadie used to feed me very thick Marmite on toast. So thick that the roof of my mouth would go numb. And I mistakenly thought that was a Jewish food when I was younger. <laughs> I think because he used to feed it to me so repeatedly. And I got, I really got into it. But my life actually is a, on a low level, is an endless search for the perfect chicken soup. Um, I will look up and down in every single place for the perfect perfect chicken noodle soup one of the best I found it just now shut down it was a little restaurant just off Great Portland Street and when I was working at the Palladium at the time and um, I used to go there for almost every meal the one we had a break or between shows and just have chicken soup with something that is my favourite thing and for any Jewish restaurant I go into I always order the chicken soup so Marmite on toast this thick and chicken soup I, think- I am fanatical about chicken soup I make excellent chicken soup I'm just saying Rachel we do chicken soup a lot actually every couple of days because it's so easy to do really really but do you find that the second day is really the best and if you freeze it it's better the next time you take out the freezer definitely the second day is better than the first i don't know what it is it's really nice the second day so i don't know if restaurants the best soup is second day chicken soup very possibly there's a restaurant in baker street called rubin's kosher restaurant and i've been on when i've been working on shows in the west end to schlep all the way there just for chicken soup but i totally identify with what you're saying because when that's what you want nothing replaces it and no other soup no other food it is a food group all on its own called Ambrosia there's an amazing Chinese restaurant but it's in Waterloo I remember I worked at the O2 many years ago and between shows I used to get the Jubilee line up to Southwark just to get the takeaway chicken soup and then get back on the Jubilee line all the way back to the O2 and then just manage to eat it just before we had the half of the second show I, I will go anywhere for a really delicious chicken soup that seems like completely acceptable listen I'm proud I'm not it's not strange I'm proud of it the Marmite <laughs> thing was strange but no the chicken soup oh we're all performers and we move through a star-studded world. But if you think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, other than us, who is your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Nemi, how about you? Well, I'm now thrown by the fact you said personal because all of this is steeped in history. This is me 
desperately trying to look back and, and uh, have connections because I've always had great enthusiasm, particularly for theatre and performing arts, but I've never had the uh, famous parents or the, the network. However, two things. So my auntie Esther, who is my beloved sister, was very good friends with Danny LaRue. The stories we have about Danny LaRue and constantly going to Hackney Empire and her being given cars home and him slipping her five pound notes and her looking after him when he was on his uppers and all that kind of stuff. So there's always been the Danny LaRue connection. I never met auntie Esther because she died sadly before I was born. But I spoke to my great uncle this afternoon and he said, now I don't know if you're ready for this. So my great grandmother was probably, probably, let's say he was, fourth cousin to a film actor called Lionel Stander, who was born in New York in 1904. He's got 133 film credits, designed to be from the 1930s right up to the 1970s, I think, and was famously one of the first people to be blacklisted in Hollywood for the whole communist thing. So it didn't work for about 10 years. So my great grandmother's sister, who lived in Boston, found this connection. So they reckon they were fourth cousins to Lionel Stander, who was very famous in Hollywood in the 20th century. And my auntie Esther was best mates with Danny LaRue in Hackney. That's what I've got for you. But for me, that's one of the most impressive things I've ever found. <laughs> that is super impressive. And being brilliant. one of the first anything is always brilliant. That's just not always brilliant. <laughs> no, not for him. But he pushed on through and apparently had an amazing fruity voice. He got married six times over the course of his life and died in 1994, but never kind of gave up, came back in the 1960s and um, was one of the founder members of the Screen Actors Guild and sounds like a formidable chap. And looks quite a lot like my great uncle. I mean, I know the fourth cousin of the great grandma and stuff, but there's definitely a sort of facial recognition thing there that makes me grin spontaneously. And Steve, what about you? Who's your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Well, I have a few as well. Um, <laughs> um, so my mother's side is a Brazil. Brazil is a very uncommon name. There's very few in the phone book. Philip Brazil, born in 1866, uh, was a, a, actually a really well-known opera singer in his day over from Russia and he had a massive operatic career apparently. I don't really know that much about him but he was pretty big at the time. The other one is uh, my wife is much, much, much cleverer than I am. She did a postdoctoral linguistic MIT in Boston. Oh, wow. And she was next door to Norm Chomsky. I am a, quite a big fan of Norm Chomsky. I mean, he, he's a, obviously a very big linguist. I, I had a lot of his books that I read when I was younger. And I went to his office and got them all signed by Norm Chomsky when I was over there because she was walking next door. So that's a kind of a, a different kind of connection. Brazil and Chomsky. Well, they were both communal. Communicators. Yes, one sang his communication. Thank you very much. Both <laughs> excellent stories. I did do a quick Google search on Brazil, and he was at the Opera House in Covent Garden towards the end of his career. I think he had to stop singing after a while because they said he'd sung so much Wagner, his voice gave out in the end. And he went to teaching, which he did for the rest of his life. But it seemed like he had an amazing career. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know more about him than I do in a way. But, <laughs> but well, I should look back on that because it's a very strange one because nobody else in the family really got into singing into showbiz really either so that's quite interesting I feel like there should be something about the fact that it was Wagner that ruined his voice yeah. and also you've both got connections to communists so well done <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was lucky enough to be able to perform at Hackney Empire a couple of years ago and I got thoroughly intimidated just being in the wings I tied myself in knots because there was this story about Auntie Esther and my Auntie Ruth going to see Danny LaRue in Panto and he'd been asked what he had in his pocket he went oh I've got filter fish for Esther and Esther was thrilled and gave a little squeal and I got so nervous because I was so overwhelmed by the weight of the occasion I just treat it like a gig which I will always regret and I hope I get another opportunity to be on that stage I think that's great with theatre though because there's real history with any theatre you work in I did Panto a few 
few times in Tewkesbury at the Roses Theatre, which is where Eric Morecambe famously died, literally died. And the feeling you get when you walk on that stage is like something magical has happened. You can tell that you are just walking on a stage that's steeped in history. And the Hackney Empire, I think, is one of those phenomenal stages to perform on as well. I think the magic the theatre can bring on us, that the memory of something like that is amazing. Well, we've talked a lot today about how Jewishness has impacted your lives, but we'd love to know a bit more about whether it's had any effect on your career. Steve, what do you think? People generally don't know that I'm Jewish on the circuit. They really don't. And even at school when I was growing up, I didn't really let it out that much. I grew up in a place where I was the only Jewish person at the school, and my twin brother, obviously. (laughs) So people on the circuit don't know I'm Jewish. When did you find out? I knew when we did Mark Mayer's gigs together. Right. I knew that time that I bumped into you with the black hat on and the long long beard. I mean, why Rachel was wearing a black hat and wearing a long beard, no. No one knows. I've really um, tried to advance my career with once, which didn't work at all, which was when I was at drama school and um, I was sharing a flat with a girl who just come over from Israel to do an MA. She's a theatre maker and she's amazing. And um, when we moved out of our kind of halls at, at drama school, we moved into different flats. She moved into a Jewish hostel in Glasgow, like a Jewish house that was fully kosher and everything. And um, I used to go and hang out with her there because I missed living with her. And then one day, I think there was some social going on with all the students that lived there. And she said to me, oh, just come along. Like, and I was like, I know, but I won't know. And she was like, oh, no, it's fine. We'll just sit at the back. And this guy was being really chatty. And he asked me my name. And I said, my name. And he said, but what's your real name? And I didn't know how to answer. And I was completely rumbled. And that was my first and last time of ever sort of thinking I could pass by just hanging at the back and, and having my first name. My one attempt and it failed miserably. So was nothing. it Paxton that he thought had been changed at the borders when your refugee grandparents came across or whatever? <laughs> well, I don't know. And now talking to my great uncle today and realising how everybody, literally everyone in his family had like six different names because they spoke Yiddish and people didn't know what was going on so people whose names were you know I don't know Herzl come down as Harris or someone's name is Jane and Joan and something else on 90 different documents I probably could have gone away with it but I think because I was so honest and I felt like I couldn't pass the test I don't know what it was but I just remember just going like this and then just fleeing yeah no it means a good Jewish name do you know what I mean I thought like Steve Steve yeah well my Best is my surname, actually. Lewis is my surname. I had to change it when I joined Equity years ago. Stephen Lewis was uh, Blakey from On the Buses. So he was the actor and he died, I think, 10 years ago or so. And so I could have claimed my name back. But by then, I'd put my name as Steve Best for Equity. Let me ask you a question, Steve, in a very bookending of the show type fashion. When you had your bar mitzvah, do you remember if you were called up as a Levy? Because Lewis, I think, is a Levy name. So it could be that. 4,000 years ago, you and Naomi were related. Moisha Ben Rubin is my Jewish name. That's so, your dad's name. That's like being called John Erickson. Right. I don't know. Lewis, I've got a feeling I should have asked my dad actually where my name came from. Because people changed their name, didn't they, when they came from Russia? Yeah, so. I can investigate that and find Google, out. Google it. I'm really troubled by the fact that Naomi was at a party and someone kind of challenged her on her name. That really doesn't sit well with me. Like, if we had you on the show, we said, please welcome to the show, Naomi Paxton. Hi, Naomi. But what's your real name? It feels really aggressive that's my memory of it and it's a memory that's kind of yeah. seeped in shame and embarrassment and misunderstanding so he was probably being very sweet and maybe he was asking everybody but yeah i just i remember that well, feeling of i think it should be shame and embarrassment for him not for you I, by the way have just googled origin of jewish surname lewis and yeah levy or levi is the origin so back you know four thousand years ago you might well be descended from the same person <laughs> 
Ah, one of the 12 tribes, uh, one of Jacob's sons. Like, hang on a minute, I have to go through them in my head. I had to sing the musical, I had to go. Yeah. Reuben was the yeah. eldest of the children of Israel with Simeon and Levi. The next one, there you go. Come on, we all, we all know it. Everyone sing along. It's time for the Jewish test. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to think that you were related back in the day in the temple, playing your instruments and washing the feet of the priests or whatever it was that the tribe of Levi did. Living the dream. At the top of the show, we mentioned that you both have two careers on the go at the same time. In our heads, we thought of that as old dog, new shtick. You start doing something, then you think, no, I want to learn another skill. Steve, how did that come about for you to be both a stand-up and a photographer? My mum was an artist and I've always been into arty stuff. So even when I was doing stand-up, I remember doing a few little pro jobs for my flatmate who worked for victim support at the time. I did some photography that was with a film camera then. I did a darkroom course. I did my do my own films and all this stuff. So then I was just doing stand-up and I remember having a camera with me backstage and I started just snapping comedians backstage and realising that no one was really doing that. Just a record of the circuit. And it just got a bit more professional. I got much more into photography. I really enjoyed the process of taking pictures. And I like the documentary side of things rather than getting people to pose although I, I do do photo shoots now which I do enjoy doing as well so that was it really and I did the first book that I, the comedy snapshot book and then I did a joker Facebook with I've taken pictures of about over a thousand comedians backstage that have been to these two little books with their jokes and four or five facts but my passion now is really this black and white fine art photography of backstage and front stage shots but initially my stuff was very much of if I was at the gig performing then I would take pictures backstage but the later stuff is I've gone out of my way to get some famous people as well especially the backstage stuff but initially the first book comedy snapshot was for years you kind of work with the same kind of comedians you know you might not see someone for six months a year I don't mean to feel bad Rachel I was in the first book um, <laughs> I'll get you don't you worry don't you worry but I remember being at that gig I think it was the first time we'd met and you came up to me and said I'm, I'm doing this project where I just take photos of comedians backstage and a part of me was thinking I've made it this is I'm a comedian backstage <laughs> and another part was like well, I just want a photo of me what What's he going to do with it? Uh, and then the book, <laughs> but, but, I saw the book, it's a stunning book. Thanks. I mean, I, I was really proud of it because it, no one's done it before anywhere in the world. It really is a kind of a, a social history of, of who's been working, especially now when we don't know what's going to happen with the circuit. But I also wanted famous people and people who started and journey people. The whole gamut I wanted in there. I didn't want it to be just a who's who of comedy. Oh, it's lovely. And Naomi, you have two lives, one as an academic and one as a performer. So how did that come to pass? I was an actor so I always wanted to be on stage and play music and dance and stuff my mum was a dancer my sister's a dancer but I don't have legs or a neck sufficiently to <laughs> um, so um, I went to a drama degree and then drama school and then I worked as an actor for 10 years and I was doing theatre and uh, radio mostly and I was in a little comedy sketch group and then got involved doing this uh, late night comedy magic show where I was playing this sort of strange magician's assistant and then I was in a play actually at the Novello Theatre and I came across a second hand book of suffrage plays and I'd never done the suffragettes at school I'd done the Tudors and then I changed schools and I did the Tudors again so I had no idea about anything in the uh, 19th 20th century and um, obviously it was the right time to find something and I just got really curious about sort of professional theatre wing of the Votes for Women movement basically because I knew the West End really well I was fascinated by the plays and the stories and the people and it wasn't that long ago and I knew a lot of those theatres and went on tour for a couple of years and did some readings and then eventually plucked up courage so I studied a PhD at the University of Manchester did it by Skype and that finished in 2020 
bit of dinner. They all just sort of, you know, sometimes you feel like you're just following a sort of Hansel and Gretel trail of breadcrumbs and you don't know where it's going. That's what happened. That's how I got into it. And so I just found out more about that and then got involved in doing shows and talking about it a lot. So I started talking on Radio 3 about it, particularly through this new generation thinker scheme. And my acting agent dropped me when I was doing my PhD because obviously I wasn't free to do stuff and I didn't have any funding to do my PhD. I got some funding from Equity Charitable Trust to do my fees and I worked all the way through. So my Ada Camp character, which was the head starter in this little late night magic cabaret, which I used to do as a strange little party trick, became my really only opportunity for performing because I wasn't able to be on the acting circuit anymore. Yeah, so it kind of developed her and then sort of it's become a bit of a two lives thing. So my first book of Suffrage Plays in 2013, which we launched at the National Theatre and then I had a couple of books come out in 2018, also launched at the National and I did a big exhibition there and I worked in Parliament, did an exhibition in Parliament and I've continued to do broadcasting and um, work in universities and in the wider arts and humanities community and uh, do all kinds of cool stuff. So at the moment I'm working on a collaborative board game for the Green and Women Everywhere project and I do a lot of public engagement work, which I really enjoy doing. But now I've been able to focus on Ida Camp. I didn't focus on her before because I sort of didn't want to have that anxiety energy that my acting career had. You know, I was climbing Gritty Pole and I wanted it and Ada was my little release. Then I've kind of made a decision to really go for Ada. So now she has an agent, she has her own world and circuit and I love her bits. I love doing that. And I last year I joined the Magic Circle and because I do a bit of magic now and um, that's just a total joy. So I, I never would have thought it would be like this. I thought I'd just be an actor, but actually it's lovely to have things that feed both sides of you. One of the things I love about my research is that it's actors and performers using their powers for good. And not just actors, but musical performers and dancers and musicians and, and writers and, and people kind of doing their party tricks as well as writing specific stuff. And I've been really lucky to be able to perform my Ada Camp character, you know, for feminist organisations and kind of be able to do my party tricks and not just be there doing my stroky beard talks about feminists from the past, but actually just to be over there making people laugh and doing silly tricks and being able to contribute in that way. So I just feel really lucky. It's a hustle. And this year has been obviously very tricky because half my life is completely freelance. Um, I work now part-time at Central School for Speech and Drama, University of London, and uh, I'm Knowledge Exchange Fellow there. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to kind of keep everything going. And I think enthusiasm is my best quality. So I just try and share the love. Yeah. I think Knowledge Exchange Fellow is one of the best job titles I've ever heard. Do you ever combine the two? So would you do an academic talk somewhere and then do the show in the evening? Does that ever come about? It has. The Welcome Collection did a big exhibition a couple of years ago called Seeing is Believing about the psychology of magic. They had a big kind of open evening, you know, a big sort of museum late. And I was booked to do two 20-minute Ada Camp shows and then in the middle to do a Q&A about suffrage theatre, <laughs> which I had. I, so I got out of my clothes, but sadly I had to keep my face on because I didn't have time to put my makeup back on. So it was quite strange. So I was trying to dress smartly with a baseball cap on and with my mad Ada Camp makeup on, answering questions about suffering theatre. And they went back on, put all the hat and the wig and everything and went out and was silly again. So sometimes that's the weirdest example. I've been a member of the Magic Circle for years and years and years. I was Young Magician of the Year finalist in 1985. I can't believe you didn't tell us that. It should have been your answer to question one. <laughs> but I actually came out of the Magic Circle because they didn't have women members for a long, long time. Because it was one of the oldest societies not to include women I mean, it's madness and the, the reasons for it was just insane and then I rejoined kind of maybe seven eight years ago again but but I, because Noel Britton I know him very well from the comedy circuit he was on the council he's uh, president I think now I didn't have to redo the exam or anything like that he just let me back in kind of thing so I, I enjoy it now but it's still very oldie worldy and, and kind of very old people there <laughs> It's interesting. So it's less than 5% of women members. So women have been allowed to join since 91, um, which is not that long ago. 
as of last year, I'm now their uh, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Officer, which is interesting when we talk about uh, representation with the organisation. I've never talked to so many middle-aged white blokes in my life, actually. It's not a demographic I tend to move in, and I'm really moving in it at the moment. It's interesting often to underplay magic, and I always used to underplay it, because when I work with magicians, they kind of did the magic, and I did the misdirection and the gurning. And then since I've done Ada, I've mostly focused on the story of a trick and not necessarily the trick. But I know more than I think I know, and it's been quite a few years now. So actually to engage with the Magic Circle to look at the lectures and you know be part of the, the meetings and reread my magic books actually go oh I do know about that and maybe I could you know A to B to C and I probably could up my magic a lot more than I do so it's been a, a nice challenge over over lockdown but yeah I think they've got a long way to go but I do think hopefully they're moving forward albeit slowly. It feels completely illogical to me that they wouldn't have allowed women into the magic circle seeing as they would have been part of the act and therefore would be in on all the secrets of how magic was done. Well, What's welcome to patriarchy point? in the 20th century yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the exclusion of women. I mean, normally I'm a big you know. fan of it, but for this, I'm dead <laughs> against it. It's part of the stuff I look at in terms of suffrage. It's not that women weren't doing it. Of course they were. It's not like they weren't doing it well and it wasn't that they weren't part of professional networks, but it's interesting how we then look at the history of those things and what falls out yeah. and what isn't recorded and what organisations kind of do keep going and, and how we kind of create these false canons based on systemic inequalities. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's curious too. Obviously, they were there and they were part of it, but we don't know about them in that way. And that's been part of, I think, the problem, the part of the slow moving problem of, of the organisation. Well, that's nearly all we've got time for. But how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you, 30. Nemi. Yes. So I have various exciting things coming up. The best way is to have a look on my website, which is naomipaxton.co.uk or on my Twitter feed, which is at Naomi Paxton. And you can find out about upcoming readings and uh, broadcasts and things. And uh, Ada Camp, my uh, comedy character, is back up and running, hopefully from May. She has gigs booked in that hopefully will not be postponed. And the best way uh, to keep in touch with her is also to look at her Twitter feed, which is at Ada Camp, A-D-A-C-A-M-P-E. And uh, if you're hungry for some suffrage plays, and who isn't? Then if you hot foot it to your nearest bookshop website and look up suffrage plays, hopefully you should see my books uh, in, in your search results. Brilliant. And Steve, how about you? Well, I've got an exhibition at the Observatory Photography Gallery in Marchmont Street. They do wonderful coffee, decaf and caffeinated and oat milk. <laughs> whatever you want and but downstairs is my exhibition and I live round the corner so if you contact me I'll come and meet you for a coffee and show you around the exhibition it's not that big but it's lovely I really really like it and from that exhibition I'm working on my next book which is Comedians Back to Front we haven't got a date for that and we haven't quite sorted all out but we're working on that still but you can still find everything that I'm doing on my website which is stevebest.com and I do photo shoots and going back to my stand-up as well I will be doing some shows well I've absolutely loved this and now we'll always think of Nemi as the Jew who will join you for coffee but not if you order anything complicated and Steve as the Jew who will print your stunning photos in three to six weeks <laughs> as my grandfather used to say I loved seeing your smiling faces arrive and I will love seeing your little tuchuses leave because sadly we've come to the end of this week's show we'd like to thank our guests Naomi Paxton and Steve Best follow them on social media follow us on social media at Jew Talking without the G don't forget to find you talking to me wherever you get your podcasts make sure you subscribe like and share with literally everybody that you know and join us next time on Jew Talking to Me Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me Philip Simon and me Rachel Krieger it was produced by Russell Bulkin 
that's really cute that you thought that was Jewish because it was from your grandfather. It's funny when you look back at it, I was thinking on the way in, I was about 14, 15, I met, well, I don't know, I forget all teenage years. So I think I just say when I was about 14 to cover all of my teenage years, so I don't have that kind of memory. I grew up near Rygate in Surrey and I remember phoning the Rygate police and um, putting myself on to be part of a lineup, you know, if they ever needed, because I thought, I, I think you got like a five pounds a time or something. And I was like, oh, I needed money. So I put myself forward and then I was expecting like daily phone calls, but obviously there wasn't a lot of <laughs> crime being committed in the Rygate area by blonde teenagers in Alice bands and barbers. I was devastated. It's only now I look back at it and go, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? Maybe the same with the Marmite thing, but yeah, they never called. They've never called the Rygate police. <laughs> One day you'll get, a, you know what, the minute this show airs, you're going to get a call. That is a great way to get away with a crime, though, to volunteer to be part of the lineup. Because <laughs> then if they pick you, they'll be like, no, 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 she's with us. <laughs>